So tonight is the finale of our series, Face to Face with God. As we've been going through this summer, we've seen Jesus encounter all different types of people. Everyone from a mistress to a skeptic to a gangster. And tonight, Jesus is going to come face to face with two people that want want nothing to do with him anymore. They've been following him. They've been engaged with him. They've been his disciples. And now they are moving on. You see, what happens previously in, in Luke and in the other Gospels as well is that Mary Magdalene, as we saw last week, goes to the tomb and she sees the tomb is empty, the stone has been rolled away, and she runs back to the disciples and she lets them know that the tomb is empty and Jesus' body is gone. And Simon, and Simon Peter and John run to the tomb to see as well. And they, they believe that Jesus has in fact risen They believe at the moment, Peter and John, that maybe he's ascended to the Father, and then Mary has this encounter, as we saw last week, with someone that she thinks originally is the gardener, but then she realizes that it's Jesus. But what we don't read in the account that we looked at last week in John is that there's a whole host of disciples that don't believe Mary's testimony. Mary comes and says that Jesus is gone and Jesus is risen. They're like, no, 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 no. Come on. People don't come back from the dead. And these two disciples here decide to move on, to leave Jerusalem on the way to Emmaus and to restart their lives. It's important to realize that there's, there's two groups of disciples. When you read disciples in the New Testament, there's two groups. There's the 12, those that are always with Jesus, the inner circle, they're with him all the time throughout his public ministry. But then there's a larger group of disciples that are followers and supporters of Jesus and that are with him in different points along the journey. A lot of them are there throughout most of the journey as well, following Jesus around. And so these two disciples that we're reading about tonight are part of that larger group that have been following Jesus, they've been supporting Jesus, but now they're done. They're moving on. And so here's where we pick up in verse 13. It says, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, seven miles, and on the journey, they're discussing with each other, listen, can you believe how crazy this weekend has been? I mean, we really believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but then the whole torture, and he was wrongly convicted, and he was killed, and then the whole burial, and now, I mean... Mary saying that he's gone and and he's risen from the dead. So they're heading off to Emmaus to restart their lives. And while they're talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near, himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they're walking, they're discussing their wild weekend. And Jesus comes up, but they don't recognize him for who he is. They spend time with him. They know what Jesus looks like. They know who he is. They certainly do not expect to see him, but they are deliberately kept from recognizing him. This is different from what happened last week where Mary just does not expect to see Jesus. And when he calls her name, she sees him. But there's a really key difference here, and that's this. Mary last week was seeking Jesus. She was looking for Jesus. These two disciples are fleeing from him. They want nothing to do with him. And so Jesus comes alongside of them, and they're unable to recognize him. And then he said to them, Jesus said, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And then one of them, 
named Cleopas. We have to stop right there. That's like the most ridiculous name of all time, right? Like you're reading that like, wait, what? What was wrong with your parents? Cleopas. So they're walking and they're discussing and this stranger comes up and, and he's like, what are you guys talking about? What's this conversation that you're having? And the two disciples here, one of them is named Cleopas, and the other one is unnamed. And it's important to understand who they are, or most likely who they are. So Cleopas, we obviously know he's a follower, he's a disciple of this larger group. And the question is, who's the person with him? Well, most likely the person with him is his wife, Mary. Because what we read about in John 19 is that there's a woman named Mary who's at the foot of the cross. This is how close they are, how closely connected they are to Jesus. She's at the foot of the cross, mourning and weeping as he's being crucified, and it says that Mary is the wife of Clopas. And you're like, that's a weird name too. But Clopas and Cleopas are two different weird names. This is correct, but most likely they're the same name, they're the same person. It's like someone is named Michael, but they also go by Mike. Two, they're spelled different, they're different names, but it's really the same name. So Yes, Cleopas and Clopas are the same names. Maybe he just decides who he wants to be, which weird per persona he wants to take on. And so they have decided, husband and wife, Cleopas and his wife Mary, are like, we're done with this whole thing. We've given, you know, last couple years of our life, and this is just getting out of control. And so this stranger comes up, and they don't recognize who he is. They don't know him, and, and he inquires about the conversation they're having, and they can't imagine that he doesn't know. So they answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And then he, Jesus, says, what things? He's like, are you, have you not been in Jerusalem this weekend? This has been like the most wild weekend ever. Jesus was wrongly accused, he was convicted, he was tortured, he was killed, he was buried, and now there's all these people saying that he has come back from the dead. I mean, this has been an incredible and an incredibly painful weekend. How do you not understand? And, and Luke is laying the irony on thick because Jesus says, well, what things? I mean, what are you guys talking about? Which is ironic because Jesus knows better than anyone what's happened this weekend, but he plays as if he doesn't know. He wants to hear from them. What's your weekend been like? And you can tell in their tone because it identifies that they're sad. They are disappointed. And they are sad. And here's what they say. Uh, here's what, what's happened this weekend. Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, uh, it was a man who was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, before God and all the people. And here's what happened. How our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company, they've amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had, women had said, but... Him they did not see. They're, they're replaying the events for this stranger. And you can hear in the way that they're explaining it, the, the pain that they feel. 
I mean, they're sad and they're disappointed. Like Jesus has been crucified and, and we had hoped that this Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the Messiah to re- that has come to redeem us. But he's been crucified. And some people really want so badly to hold on to this and, or maybe they're not processing it right and they're saying that he's come back from the dead. But we're kind of moving on from that. Have you ever felt like this before? You ever had those moments where you're looking at the unfolding of God's plan in your life and it's leaving you feeling sad and disappointed? You see, they can't imagine that Jesus the Messiah would allow himself to be tortured and killed and buried and that he would come back from the dead. They're picturing a warrior and yet Jesus is the Lamb of God who gives his life as a ransom for many and they they can't imagine that this is how God's plan is going to unfold doesn't make any sense to them. I think there's many times in our life, right, where we feel like that. You're looking at the unfolding of God's plan in your life, and you're like, this doesn't make any sense. How is this good? How how is this going to bring resurrection to the dead things in my life? I don't see it. So it leaves you feeling sad and disappointed. And then what happens for many of us is you begin to think to yourself, you know what, maybe this isn't the right path. Maybe it's not worth it. It's not making sense. It's not looking good. And so maybe the choice is I need to leave and go find another village. I need to go restart my life. I need to kind of leave God. I need to leave Jesus. And I need to go a different direction and try something new because it feels like I've wasted the last couple years. I've wasted a lot of time because it's leaving me sad and disappointed. And that is not the promise. Maybe some of you are like at that place where you're not looking to leave God, you still trust and believe in God, you, you know that Jesus is your Savior, but there's certain parts of your life that the way that God is unfolding, your life does not feel right. It doesn't make much sense to you. And so you're not going to leave God altogether, but there's certain places in your life that you're like, you know what, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to try a new path. I've been trying this. It's not working. I'm trying to be a disciple. I'm trying to be a follower. I'm trying to to run after Jesus, but it is not ending up the way that I imagined. This cannot be good. It doesn't make any sense. I'm going to try something new. And this is one of the greatest temptations, is to not believe God at his word. It's the very first temptation, actually. All the way back in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 3, God looks at Adam and Eve and says, listen, I have a life of flourishing and joy and goodness planned for you. Here's the deal. There's a tree. Here's the tree. Just don't eat of the tree. Okay, clear enough. Sounds good. And then the devil comes as a serpent. And what does he say? Did God really say that? Did God really say that? Because it doesn't make much sense. I mean, is God really going to care if you eat some fruit? In fact, it's probably going to make your life better. It's probably going to bring wisdom. It's going to make your life improve. So just try it. God's plan doesn't make sense this way. Why would he keep you from this? Just try it. And many of us are are struggling with that, right? We're feeling that in work, in relationships, in family, Feeling, I don't understand why this is, how this could be God's good plan in my life. I don't like how it's unfolding. It doesn't make any sense to me. I should go try something new. I should go to a different village. 
Maybe there's something there. Maybe there's hope. Maybe there's joy. Maybe there's goodness there because I don't really see it in this path that God has said is going to bring flourishing and joy to my life. And that's how Mary and Cleopas are feeling. Like We've given so much and it just does not add up. So we're going to restart our lives and we're going to move on. And so Jesus said to them, verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They don't recognize it as Jesus yet, but he looks at them and he says, it's so foolish to think this way. And why is it foolish? Notice what he says. They're foolish because they're slow of heart to believe. They had all the knowledge. They've been spending their life studying and reading scripture. They've been following Jesus around and listening to his teachings. The problem is not the information. The problem is their inner conviction. It's their heart. It's, it's not their knowledge. It's their heart. They're unwilling to embrace the ways of God. They can't see it because it doesn't make sense to their mind. Their heart's not going to trust in it. So they're going to move on to what they think makes more sense. And Jesus looks at them and says, this is so foolish to live your life based upon what you think instead of what God says. Jesus says is foolish. It's foolish to follow down that path. And then what Jesus does, he says, listen, let, let's, let's take a break for a moment. Let's go back through and see in all of Scripture why it was necessary actually for Christ, for the Christ to suffer and die. Let me show you what you missed. Let me show you what you didn't see because you were just trying to stay in your mind. You were elevating your mind over God's word. You weren't really looking to see what his word said and the promises that he's given. So let me show you. And it says that Jesus walks with them as they're walking on this multiple hour journey to Emmaus. And he shares with them and he shows them that Jesus and his path and his life and his mission is all throughout the Old Testament. So I have to imagine he starts with Adam. He's like, remember the story of Adam and Eve, very famous story in the very beginning well, Jesus is the better Adam. Because Jesus followed God's will perfectly. And he gave his life so that you might be reconciled back to a perfect relationship with God. Genesis 3.15, which is the very first prophecy of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was, in fact, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. He would crush sin and death by allowing his, cell, his body to be crushed for his heel to be bitten. And then maybe he moved on to Isaac, and he's like, you know the story of Isaac? Well, Jesus is the better Isaac. He is the beloved son of the father that laid his life down on the altar, but he didn't succumb to death because he has, in fact, come back. Jesus is the better Moses who leads his people out of the land of death and on a journey towards life. He is the better Joshua who leads his people into the promised land. He is the better David that conquered the giant of sin and death for you and for me. And he invites us into his kingdom. He is the better sacrificial system because he is the final sacrifice, the lamb of God that gave his life, as we saw last week, and his blood was shed 
and it was placed on a brand new Ark of the Covenant where you are allowed access to the presence of God. He is the better Solomon because Jesus was perfectly wise. And he lived a life of wisdom and he modeled for us what that looks like. And they walk through this and they listen to Jesus. And I have to imagine that their mind was blown. As they're walking through all of this, they're just left breathless. They can't ever see scripture the same anymore. It's like the first time you saw Sixth Sense. Do you remember that? First time you saw Sixth Sense, you get to the very end. Spoiler alert, Bruce Willis is dead. If you haven't seen it by now, I'm sorry. You had your moment. You get to the end and you realize Bruce Willis is dead and you're like, wait, what? And if you're like me, you're like, pause, done. Restarting the movie. We're just watching it all over again because I know I missed something. Then you're watching and you're like, wait, the boy and Bruce Willis never actually look at each other. Like, how did I miss that? There's all these little things that you missed because you couldn't imagine the ending was that. They can't imagine that the Messiah would allow himself to be tortured and crucified and buried and that he would come back from the dead. And so now as they look back in scripture, they're seeing all of these things that they never saw before. They're coming to realize that the Bible is not a rule book. It's not a self-help book. It is about Jesus. Every line, every story is pointing to Jesus. And it leaves them breathless. See, this is the beauty of God's word. It can leave you breathless. It is the only book in the world that you cannot exhaust. We could come here every Sunday night and preach this passage, and we would never exhaust one chapter. Have you experienced that? Have you spent time in God's word? You read something, and you're like, I never saw that before. That never connected with me in that way. You see, God's word not only pierces your mind, it pierces your soul. It is alive. It is active because it is, in fact, God's word, which is why it is so important that you spend time in God's word yourself, that you spend time because your life should be determined and directed not by what you think, but by what God's word says. And so what happens is we, we, we kind of get into this rhythm, and maybe you're here. Maybe this is where you're at. You get into this rhythm. You know that. You believe that God's word is his word. You want to cling to the promises of God. You want to be reminded of truth. You want to find the path that leads to wisdom and righteousness in your life. And the only time that you actually spend time in God's word is here on Sunday night. Right? Or when you go to Bible study. I want to challenge you. Because this cannot be the only time that you spend in God's word. It's alive. It is active. And by the Holy Spirit, through faith, you are enabled to understand the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2 gives you that promise. You don't need a seminary education. To understand and to see all the things that God has for you in his word. You see, your life should be determined and directed not by what you think and not only by what the pastor says, but by what God's word says. And you have to spend time in it. There's a great quote by J.C. Ryle, a 19th century Anglican bishop, and he says this. 
The Bible in the pulpit must never supersede the Bible at home. The Bible in the pulpit must never supersede the Bible at home. See, God in his, in his plan has called us to come together as a church weekly, to worship together, to sing together, to pray together. And it is important to come and listen to God's word expounded upon. And God does gift people and call people to hold out the word of life and enable his church and his people to understand the deep truths and to grab on to some of the things that God has enabled them to speak. And the Holy Spirit, even tonight, is going to be applying those things to your heart. Not just your mind, but your heart. But it can be so easy, right, to go home and to say, okay, I'm going to spend time in God's word. I'm going to read the Bible on my own. And you pick a book and you start in the book and you start a couple chapters in and what do you think? I don't understand this. Right? There's some books you probably avoid altogether. You're like, I don't understand anything about that book. Most Old Testament staying away, you know. But you're reading it and you're like, I, I, don't, I don't see it the way that I hear it on Sunday night. So why don't I just wait? Because I'm not going to see everything. I'm not going to learn everything that I can learn when I just listen. That's not the point. It's important to learn and to study and to understand God's word. That's, that's, that's vital. It's important to come on Sunday night to be in a Bible study. You know, get a study Bible and read the notes. There's all different types of things that are wonderful. But the intention of God's word is not to give you more knowledge. It's that you see Jesus. That's what he says. Jesus says the entire Bible is about him. And so what that means is when you spend time in God's word, who are you supposed to see? Jesus. Not more rules, not an interesting cultural fact, historical story. It's important to learn, but what you're supposed to see is Jesus. And the promise is that when you spend time in God's word, you will see Jesus. You will find Jesus. If you're on the road to Emmaus and you're walking away from Jesus on a hole or you're certain areas of your life that you're like, you know what, I just don't see it. I don't understand how God's plan is unfolding and this is good and I'm just going to try something new. Jesus will chase you down. And maybe he's even doing that tonight. And he's calling you and inviting you to come to his word. Think about what God's word is. We have this available, not in only hard copy, but it's all in your pocket right now. Isn't that amazing? It's in your pocket. You can access God's word, which is hope and strength and joy at any moment of any day. That is unbelievable. And we need to spend time in it. We need to come to understand it because the desire is that we would see Jesus. Because when you see Jesus and when you find Jesus, you find strength to embrace the ways of God. Because what happens is as you read God's word and as God through the power of the Holy Spirit enables you to see Jesus more clearly and to find him, you begin to think to yourself, why would I doubt the way that God is unfolding his plan in my life? It may not make sense to me. It may be painful and difficult in some ways, but why would I doubt God's good intentions? He's given his only son for me. Jesus laid down his life for me. Why would I doubt him? 
Why would I doubt that this book is alive and active and full of wisdom when I know that I'm forgiven for all of my unwise decisions? And that God is patient with me and gentle and gracious with me. That's what you see here. These disciples are done with Jesus. They're walking away, Mary and Cleopas, and Jesus comes alongside of them. And what does he do? He graciously walks through Scripture with them. He meets them where they're at. He chases them down. And he does the same with us when we walk away. And so Mary and Cleopas are astounded at what they're seeing as Jesus has been so gracious to them. They still don't understand that it's him. But they don't want to leave his sight, obviously. This is an unbelievable experience for them. It's the sixth sense experience, and they want to spend more time with this guy. So it says in verse 28, they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, like, stay with us. For it's towards the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Imagine that moment. They're sitting down, they get the food, they got the bread, and Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it as he blesses it and he hands it to them. And in that instant, they recognize him. And they have to be thinking, we have been walking with Jesus this entire time. He was sharing the reality of God's word that it's all about him patiently, graciously walking with us. And it had to have been a powerful experience for them because most likely as disciples and followers of Jesus, they were there when Jesus took bread and he multiplied it and fed the 5,000. They were probably there. Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it and he hands it out and now it's all hitting them. He is the bread of life. He is the one that I should run after, that I should follow after. Why am I fleeing? Why are we running away? And Jesus vanishes and he leaves and it's so important to see what happens next because here's what happens when your eyes are open to the reality of who Jesus is. When you see him in his word, when you see his promises, when you see the truth of God's word in your life, this is what happens every single time. It says to them that they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. They're fleeing Jesus. They're, they're, they're done with this whole Christian movement. They're leaving Jerusalem on the road to the Emmaus. They meet this stranger. The stranger comes up, begins to explain to them that it's foolish to live based upon what you think. Instead, it should be about what your heart believes. The stranger walks with them and begins to show them that the entire word of God is about Jesus. And he did, in fact, have to suffer and die so that you might be redeemed. And they sit down at dinner and they realize when Jesus breaks the bread and distributes it that Jesus has been walking with them the entire time. And as their eyes are open to the reality of who Jesus is, his grace, his patience, his love, the truth of his promises, what do they immediately do? They return. That's not insignificant. It's the middle of the night. They're seven miles away. To walk back many hours 
back to Jerusalem, it's not an easy decision. They could have just waited till morning, right? Like, let's go to bed, wake up, sleep in a little bit, we're tired. They immediately return. The, the road back is dangerous, especially at night. And they're returning to Jerusalem that is extremely dangerous for them because they're associated with Jesus. Not to mention they are physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted from all of the events of this past weekend. At every excuse to say, let's just go back tomorrow. But they immediately return. They immediately go back. What? Why? To share the gospel with those that they had abandoned earlier that day. They go back to say, Jesus did in fact come back from the dead. We left thinking it's ridiculous. Let me tell you, he did. And he appeared to Simon. Let me tell you what has happened on our journey. Let me tell you our story of what we experienced. See, this is what always happens. When you see Jesus in God's word, when you spend time in God's word, you are always sent out. Oftentimes you're sent out and back to the people that you have walked away from. This is what God's word does every single time. See, there's two really important things to see in this passage. One is that when you begin to walk away from Jesus, he chases you down. You may not recognize him right away. Maybe some of you are experiencing this tonight. Maybe you're walking away from Jesus on the whole. Maybe you're exploring Jesus. Maybe you're thinking about certain areas of your life that you're going to give up on, on what Jesus says and you're going to do what you think is best and Jesus is chasing you down. And as you spend time in God's word, you'll see the truth and the beauty and the transformative power of who Jesus is. But if you're here and you're like, you know, I found Jesus, I believe Jesus, and sometimes I'm sad and disappointed because I'm honest, but I desire to follow after Jesus. I want to see him in his word. Then he is sending you out. And he's sending you out tonight. Not well, listen, he, okay, he can send me out, Carter, but once work calms down, because right now work is a lot, it's taking up most of my life, and once work calms down, then I'll be sent out with the gospel. Or once, you know, right now I'm really tired, physically, emotionally, spiritually, I'm drained, I need to be refilled. Once I'm refilled and God gives me that refreshment, then I'll be sent out to the people that I've walked away from. Once my situation in work and the environment that I'm in, or my friend circles is kind of hostile, once that gets better and less dangerous to my reputation, then I will be sent out with the gospel. You're sent out tonight. You see, God's word always sends you out, sends you out to battle temptation, sends you out to fight for justice, sends you out to live a life of righteousness. But God's word does one thing every single time that is crucial. It sends you out to love people with the gospel, with the gospel. Not just love to be kind and compassionate, that's important, but to love people with the gospel. To share Jesus, to share your story. Notice they do that. They share their story of what they experienced. You are sent out with the gospel to love people. To share the reality of who Jesus is with others because it is beautiful and transformative and unbelievable that Jesus chases his people down. And he calls us to go out and to love 
others with the gospel. So I want to leave you with this. If you spend time in God's word, you'll know it. You know how you know it? Because you're going to love other people with the gospel. You're going to share, talk about Jesus with other people. And if you're not talking about Jesus with people, it's probably because you're not spending much time in God's word. This is where we're called to spend time each and every day. Will you pray with me?